right? We have got quite the job to do this morning. So um, it is now almost 20 past 10. Our aim is to have our service finished by 11 o'clock, followed by half an hour fellowship, followed by a members meeting, uh, and yet here we are in a really dense part of the Old Testament, which making our way through and getting the goodness out of it requires just a little bit more effort from us than, than reading some other parts of the Bible will. And we've got to do all of that uh, in a sermon that's got three points of application, each of which could easily be a standalone sermon. I'm not going to make a promise I can't keep. <laughs> but we will endeavor, endeavor to, uh, to get our way through this, get our heads around it, uh, to get the most out of it as we can, and to be finished before tomorrow. <laughs> hey, we're making our way through the book of Nehemiah. Uh, it's a record of a part of the history of God's people, which is very spiritually profound and significant. It was a short-lived but important period of renewal and revival amongst God's people, both personally and the quality of their own spiritual walk, and then also just because it touched the lives of so many nationally. It changed the course of culture, at least for a time. It played an important role in setting up the pages of history for the arrival of Christ, and in it we find so much that we long to see in our own day. Uh, we are learning about the character of our God as it has been displayed throughout history, and we are learning that the God of the Bible, our Lord, is a redeeming God. A redeeming God. The God who takes broken things and makes them whole. The God who takes lost things and makes them found. The God who binds up the brokenhearted, who, who brings justice and righteousness and reconciliation. And we're seeing that again in our passage today. Um, we've been thus far in the, the journey of the Hebrews during the, the ministry of Nehemiah, we've been rebuilding some walls. Um, they are largely complete now. And in chapter 5, which we'll read in just a moment, we find that there's a new set of problems facing the people. Why don't we read going from Nehemiah chapter 5, verse 1. It says, Now there arose... A great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, With our sons and our daughters we are many, so let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. There were also those who said, We are mortgaging our fields and vineyards and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, We have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. And now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers. Our children are as their children. Yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have already been enslaved. But it is not in our power to help it. For other men have our fields and our vineyards. The first part of this passage, it's an unpleasant read. And as we describe and understand what is being said here, it's going to feel a little bit like I'm putting layers of unhappiness on top of you, one by one, because the problem here is a, it's a bleak one, and it's a cyclical one. With the rebuilding project that has been going on for some time, we come up to this, this massive hardship as if all of the external, political, tumultuous opposition that we heard about last week wasn't enough of a heavy load. 
there is now a food shortage in Jerusalem. People are at risk of starving. I think here we can be a little bit oblivious to how big the problem of hunger can get very quickly. I mean, even during the the craziness of the last few years, at least in my house, we never ran out of food. Do you know what I mean? Some things became scarce. Toilet paper, for some reason, as if that's some sort of precious resource that's limited. It's funny, I was talking to Elisa's grandma, who's now in her late 80s. She was telling me, we just used to use magazines. I don't know what the fuss is. (laughs) You can take the girl out of Bundy. Plain flour became scarce because the entire populace of the country simultaneously took up baking bread as a hobby. And yet we always had food and water, even during what I think were probably the hardest years most of us have ever experienced. But in an ancient world, running on subsistence farming without refrigeration and modern transport technology, famine was a big deal. It was a constant worry. It could strike suddenly and only the most stable and established places on earth had the ability to prepare for and to mitigate its effects. It could come suddenly, and when caught in the midst of it, things could get bad fast, and it was difficult to find a way out. It turns out that people can actually starve to death. Why a famine? We don't know for sure. It doesn't tell us, but it's possible that amongst whatever kind of environmental factors were going on, with all the men working on the walls, maybe not enough effort has gone into the planting and the reaping and the harvesting for that year. But it's not just that. There are some other factors which are entirely preventable, which were exaggerating the problem of this famine. Some other factors which were making it worse. For example, in order to buy grain because of the famine... The people are lending out their fields for other people to use. They're they're leasing out their farming property in order to get immediate cash, in order to buy grain. Okay? Think about it, though. That's a solution that gets you grain today, but prevents you from growing grain for tomorrow if you no longer own your own farmland. That's an impending disaster. As well as that problem... We have the problem of the king's tax sitting on top of the people. Which king are we talking about? The king of Persia. At this moment in history, the Hebrews are a conquered people who have to pay a a, a vassalage to the king of Persia in order to prevent him from crushing them. And so some of the people have borrowed money to pay when the tax man came because they didn't have enough money to pay that as well. And so we have a famine compounded by economic hardship and production shortages and the heavy burden of excessive taxes. Doesn't that sound wonderful? This is a bit of a hole-in-the-bucket dealizer kind of situation. It's something of a catch-22. The things that you need in order to solve that problem aren't available to you because of that problem. It's pretty bleak. And as a result, these people were being forced to make use of the slavery system within Jewish law. It's a bit different to what we picture when we think of, of modern slavery. Uh, in, in the law of Moses, Hebrews weren't allowed to be taken as slaves by force, and they weren't allowed to be made permanent slaves. But if you were unable to pay your debts, you would have to give yourself to the person who you owed money for, for a period of up to a maximum of six years. 
On the seventh year, you were to be set free. And for the most part, this system was designed as a way of providing for people who got stuck and couldn't pay the debts. It was a thing that some people even entered into voluntarily, if we can get our minds around that. But it certainly was not the ideal life. There was a shame and a grief and a hardship attached to it. And it made you the dependent of someone else. And what is more, people being people, as we can imagine, it was a system that was often entirely abused. Whatever protections of law were in place in this system, the human race got a human race. And so all of the rules, all of the protections were at times broken. There were things that Hebrews weren't allowed to do to other Hebrews as fellow participators in the covenant community. That's a strange feature of the law of God, at least from our perspective. In the law of Moses, the Hebrews get special treatment amongst each other. Those rules don't always apply to those who come from the outside nations and are living in the Holy Land. And as Christians, those higher rules, the rules for Hebrew on Hebrew conduct, tend to describe the attitude that we want to have towards the entire human race. That's because we're reading from this side of Jesus. We have a deeper understanding of what God was getting at. But file that away, because that's going to come up again before we're done today. Strange feature of the law number one, the special treatment of some. So here's a picture of life in Jerusalem at the time. Not just opposition, as if that wasn't enough. Famine, economic hardship, slavery. Things are hard in Jerusalem. They're up against it. If you were living there in that time, what would that do to your faith? How does hardship affect us? How do we respond when we find ourselves going through the difficult things in life? It's deep grief. And so when we read what is happening in verse 6 and onwards, it absolutely should shock us because this is possibly the greatest tragedy of everything we've just read. Verse 6, Nehemiah speaking, says, I was very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. I took counsel with myself and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. Which nobles and officials? The Hebrew ones. I said to them, you are exacting interest, each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them and said to them, We, as far as we are able, have brought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations, but you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. They were silent and could not find a word to say. See, as if all those other things weren't enough, the nobles and officials... The leaders of the Jewish people have taken this opportunity to make some extra profit for themselves. Surely, nobody would act like this today. Sarcasm, if you didn't pick it up. They are lending at interest. We'll come back to that. And it seems that they are abusing the slavery system. In other words, they are profiteering from other people's misery. And all of this makes Nehemiah angry. 
because of course it does. More importantly, it's safe for us to conclude that all of this makes the Lord God angry. Our God is the defender of the weak and of the oppressed. He is the champion of the widow and the orphan. And this is greedy sin, plain and simple. The powerful are taking advantage of the powerless and God hates it. And this is the way that his people are conducting themselves during a period of crisis. Now, as we read this, you might ask yourself the question, well, hang on, circle back a bit, Matt. What exactly is wrong with, quote-unquote, exacting interest? We might ask. Well, it turns out (laughs) that that is against the law of Moses for Hebrews to loan at interest to other Hebrews. Under that law, you could give a loan, you cannot charge interest in any situation ever. Outside of the covenant nation, different story, but amongst the Hebrews, firmly, firmly, firmly out of bounds. And here we get to another interesting effect that God's law has on us. In allowing a system of bonded service, that really offends us. Albeit, it's a different different one to the one that was created later. This wasn't permanent chattel slavery. And yet, in, in even allowing a smaller version of it, God's law offends us because how could God tolerate such a thing, we think. And then at the same time, in forbidding lending at interest, doesn't God's law seem to our ears to be strangely narrow? What is the problem with that? We are offended by anything that looks like slavery, and we are not offended by the lending at interest thing. We find ourselves agreeing with some parts of God's law more than we agree with others. Have you had that experience? File it away. We're going to come back to it. And so here's the short version of what's happening. The nobles and the leaders have just been acting how everyone else around them is acting. They have been conducting themselves the way that is the norm here on earth. And as a result, they are heaping further burdens on powerless people in crisis. That is the norm, isn't it? It is done all over the world, throughout all of human history. These people are acting in a way which is, from a human perspective, normal. That's just how money works. It's just business. It turns out that even Nehemiah, we like him so much, is implicated in this crisis. Because depending on how you read verse 10, it's not crystal clear, but it could be read as a confession coming from him saying, yeah, look, we've been doing this too. But we we get to the, the turning point here in the story, which is what makes the life of Nehemiah so different, so special, so exciting. Because he, as the up and coming governor, is going to use his position to change this situation as a direct result of his being a worshipper. Let's read from verse 9. So I said, the thing that you were doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants 
are lending them money and grain, let us abandon this exacting of interest. Return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards and their houses and the percentage of money, grain, wine and oil that you have been exacting from them. And then they said, we will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. And I called the priests and I made them swear to do as they had promised. I also shook out the fold of my garment and said, so may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, Amen, and praised the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes the king, that's the king of Persia, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food, of, uh, ate the food allowance of the governor. The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them for their daily ration 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over the people, but I did not do so because of the fear of God. I also persevered in the work on this wall, and we acquired no land, and all my servants were gathered there for the work. Moreover, there were at my table 150 men, Jews and officials, besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. And now what was prepared at my expense for each day was one ox and six choice sheep and birds, and every 10 days, all kinds of wine in abundance. Yet for all this, I did not demand the food allowance of the governor, because the service was too heavy on this people. End of chapter 5, a prayer. Remember for my good, O my God, all that I have done for this people. Centuries later, in instructing Timothy how to lead a church, Paul told him this in 1 Timothy chapter 2. He said, first of all then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. The life of Nehemiah is a good example of why we pray like that. How different life was becoming for these ordinary people under the leadership of a godly man like Nehemiah than it was under the, lie, under the, the leadership of those who had come before him. It's our prayer today. Dear God, give us leaders like this today. Now, here's what I want to do. I want to pull three important spiritual principles out of this story for us to consider this morning. This could be a month-long sermon series. It's been a, it's been a wild one in the Maloney office this week. Some of these I'm going to keep digging into myself just for, just for personal delight. I'm going to attempt to go a little bit quicker. I'm just now deciding which one we're going to do first. <laughs> let's, do this, let's do this one. 
because it is the most complicated and potentially the longest, <laughs> uh, the hardest to get the most out of, but, but really important. Here's the first thing for us to consider. There is a principle here that we probably do not think about all that much as Christians, which is this. It's important that we consider the role that the law of Moses should play in our lives as Christians. As I say that, you're all ready to go. This is my favorite thing to talk about, you're thinking. Looking at the watch. I'll go quick. We've got an interesting relationship with the law, don't we? We know that we aren't saved by our keeping it. We know that Jesus fulfilled it. And therefore, we have a different relationship with that law than what was true of ancient Israel, including Nehemiah. We described this a few years ago, but it was a few years ago now, when we preached through the book of Exodus and we got to Sinai. You could probably go back on our church website or the YouTube channel and find the long sermons that we did on this. But here's the quickest of reminders. What we said was, broadly speaking, in the Old Testament law, we find three, three kinds of law, and we relate to them all slightly differently. Within the law of Moses, you will find what gets called ceremonial laws, laws about sacrifices and washings in the temple. What we said was, that is the part of the law of Moses which is most clearly fulfilled in Christ, and so as Christians, we do not continue to observe these laws. Rather, we look to Jesus in gratefulness that he has become these things on our behalf. For example, we don't each year slaughter a Passover lamb. Jesus, our Passover lamb, has already been slaughtered. Next, there was the moral law. Rules about what is right and wrong, defining sin and righteousness. And as Christians, we keep these, not as a method of salvation, but they describe the moral character of God and who he is growing us to become through grace. Grace is going to make us moral like God is moral. The Ten Commandments, such as do not murder, still apply to us. And then there is the civil law, the laws for governing the nation. Now, these are the tricky ones. The church is not a nation. And so, in a sense, many of these do not apply to us. And yet, they still contain a great deal of wisdom and goodness and justice that any world government or earthly leader should heed. We have been blessed, for example, by living in a country underneath what is called the Westminster system of government, whose political foundations included the wise consultation of Deuteronomy. The law of Moses is foundational to the law of Australia, whether you were aware of it or not. It's not perfect. You can do a lot worse. Those categories, those three categories, aren't as neat as we might hope for them to be. They're not, they're not actually categories, they're descriptions. For example, in the civil law, there is quite a lot of moral teaching. And a relevant example of this comes to us from Leviticus chapter 25. You are hoping to turn there this morning. Here's your chance. You can turn to verse 35 if you'd like to read along with me. And as we read it, you'll see how precisely this relates to what we've been reading about in Nehemiah. Leviticus chapter 25 verse 35 says, If your brother becomes poor, and cannot maintain himself with you. You shall support him as though he were a stranger and a sojourner, but he shall live with you. 
Take no interest from him or profit, but fear your God that your brother may live beside you. You shall not lend him your money at interest, nor give him your food for profit. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt to give you the land of Canaan and to be your God. If your brother becomes poor beside you and sells himself to you, you shall not make him serve as a slave. He shall be with you as a hired worker and a sojourner. He shall serve with you until the year of Jubilee. And then he shall go out from you, he and his children with him, and go back to his own clan and return to the possession of his fathers. For they are my servants, whom I brought out of the land of Egypt. They shall not be sold as slaves. You shall not rule over him ruthlessly, but shall fear your God. You feel it? The two issues occurring within Israel during this part of history literally sit side by side in God's law. The stuff about slavery and the stuff about lending. They are civil laws, but they have a strong moral component. Notice the motivation behind this reasoning. We'll be there in a second. Fear God. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out from slavery, into my presence as my people, so that I can be your God. And so because of that, don't enslave your brother. That's defeating the whole purpose of the thing that God is doing in this world. Can I suggest to you here two things, first of all, that there is a lesson in the midst of those two strange interactions we thought of before with the Old Testament law. The first is this, that in in regards to the law applying differently to different people, in, in regards to there being extra protections for the Hebrews in the promised land than those provided for the nations around them, I think that we can say that when you and I read the law, all the rules which govern the relationship between the Hebrews are giving us a picture of God's actual design for human interactions. It's the preferred way that not just Hebrews would treat Hebrews, but how all people would treat all people. You could call it God's ideal of society. This is the kind of attitude we see taught by Jesus in his radical escalation of the law, where he takes the generous application of the law, which existed between Hebrew and Hebrew, and expands it to all people. Think about the story of the prodigal prodigal son, which was given in response to the question, who is my neighbor? And Jesus' answer is, the Samaritan is being neighborly because he is treating with kindness the broken man. Anyone and everyone. The gates of grace have been flung wide open. It's why you and I, most of us are not Hebrews, I'm going to guess. It's because we've been brought into that that line of promise to which we did not previously belong. It really is true that if we are going to treat our fellow man in a God-honoring way, we will treat them in the high way that was commanded within the covenant community. Do you understand what I'm saying? The other stuff was a concession at a time. It is not the goal. When William Wilberforce and John Newton worked so hard for so long to abolish the slave trade in England, 
and by their efforts also here, it never came in the same way. It was on the basis of their Christian faith. The seed that overthrew permanent chattel slavery is found within the law of Moses. It's found in the way in which the Hebrews were commanded to treat each other because that is the actual better ideal. Which brings us to that next strange thing. Because when we look at those ideals, we find that we like some of them and we don't like others. We like some of them and we don't like others. It's possible for us to read God's law and come to the conclusion, God doesn't know what he's talking about. So many do that today. I need you to know that our God is righteousness and justice personified. We are used to living in a time where values have shifted and the objections to Christianity have changed. It's just not true. That's what we used to hear. But that is no longer the complaint. Rather, the accusation has become, your faith is immoral. Your God is evil. He denies human rights and is oppressive. That's the accusation. The thinkers of our age believe themselves to have the moral high ground over the God of the Bible. They look down on him. But God's law is better than any standard that people are devoted to today. It is a delight and it is a blessing to those who will listen to it. Wisdom that hates God isn't wisdom. It leads to ruin. And so you and I as Christians, when we find things in the law that we don't like, are not to behave like that. Rather, we are to stop and to listen. We are to put away that spiritually arrogant reaction of immediately assuming that we are the enlightened ones and we know better than God. Actually, what is happening in that moment is that God is correcting us. Next, we do the complicated job of working out what does it look like for us to live these things out in light of Christ. It will not be identical to how it worked in Old Testament Israel, but there is a question that needs an answer. What are we meant to take away from this in the New Testament era? Do you understand? The same law which led to the abolishment of slavery in the, same, in the sorts of countries that we are attached to, a thing for which we are all grateful, that same law also places lending at interest outside of bounds. That's got something to say to us. It bans them both, and it does so for the exact same reason. The God who rescued his people from slavery does not want us making eternal debt slaves out of one another. To be clear here, it is the one doing the lending, the powerful, who is being rebuked. This was, under the law of Moses, considered to be a serious sin. It even has a name. It's called usury. Usury has been described as the forgotten sin because no one today thinks it's sinful. The word has come to mean lending at excessive interest in English. But here in Moses, that's not what it means. 
What it means is lending at any interest at all. When you consider that, you have a moment. <laughs> Our entire economic system has been built on the basis of enabling a thing which God has put outside of bounds within his covenant people. That is a dilemma. The global banking system directly contradicts the law of God. You cannot ignore God without consequences. I do not know the solution to that big problem. I don't have a lot of influence in the global banking community. I was on the phone the other day to Vanguard, the investing firm. Hey, guys, would you consider not charging interest? They hung up. What I do know is that if this was outlawed tomorrow, can you imagine the chaos that would create? It'd be, it'd be a, there's a difficult problem to fix. And yet... If we as a global community had been listening to God for the last several centuries, can you imagine how different the world economy would look? Anytime you've assumed that it's just normal that you need to borrow and be in debt for 40 years in order to have a home for your family, that's not how the world is meant to be. When the book of Revelation predicts a day when a loaf of bread will buy a bag of gold, it's quite possible that this is the very thing which will cause that to happen. If you want to live your life the way that Jesus has taught, if you want to live in light of God's revealed will, it will by necessity mean that we are going to break with the normal way of doing things that the wider culture is so comfortable with, in, in, in this and so many other details. We are going to approach money differently to the world around us. Maybe we can't solve the big problem today, but we can look at our own lives and we can ask, what does this mean for us? We can stop assuming that what other people do is normal, that what is normal is normal. And at the very least, it's going to mean <laughs> we aren't going to loan to one another at interest. I hope you're not doing that. I haven't heard of that going on. But doesn't Jesus take this further? in radically redefining for us our entire attitude towards money, in demanding us continue what he has begun, which is radical generosity. Jesus said in his Sermon on the Mount, give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Our attitude towards money is to be rescued and redeemed by the same God who rescues and redeems the slave. We are not to live for, worship, pursue mammon as the goal of our life. We are not to be greedy for filthy lucre, according to the King James Bible. I love that one. All the banking apps on my phone are in a folder called filthy lucre, just to remind me. <laughs> It's an easy temptation for me to avoid because all of those apps tell me that there's no money. <laughs> we do not live for money. Let the one, says John the Baptist, who has two coats give to the one who has none. Let the one who has food share with his neighbor who has not. This we do 
because this is how our God has treated us. We are not to make slaves of one another. Now, you're worried. I've got two more points to go, and we've got five minutes left in a service. I will go fast. That one point was six pages long, for the record. Here's the next thing I think we see in this passage, and it's related. There is a very clear motivation, which is the thing which creates the difference between Nehemiah and those leaders who have gone before him. Nehemiah starts to use his position to start making changes at great cost to himself. He is not claiming the wage that others say that he deserves. We've got a members meeting in half an hour. We're going to vote on a pay rise for Mike, I'm just saying. I shouldn't, like, I shouldn't even joke about it because he'll like, get up in the meeting and ask us to not give him the raise. He's that kind of guy. You're getting it. Everything Nehemiah does has a clear motive. What is it? The fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord. We heard it mention it in verse 9. It comes up again in verse 15. Verse 9, Nehemiah says to the leaders, the thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? Summarizing his governorship in verse 15, he says, The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them for their daily ration 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over the people. But I did not do so because of the fear of God. In our passage today, what is the problem? People have been hit hard by circumstances and the powerful are preying upon them. And what is the solution? The answer is the fear of the Lord. That we would walk in the fear of the Lord. What do we mean by the fear of the Lord? Not abject terror, that's good news. It's not like God is some unpredictable predator waiting waiting around every corner to pounce on us suddenly. Ah, the Lord! That's, that's not what we're talking about. It doesn't mean being afraid of God, like the demons are, who believe and yet tremble. That does not bring about the kind of transformation that we see in Nehemiah. That's not it. No, the, the right fear of the Lord is a huge biblical theme, which basically means due reverence. Due reverence. It comes from the knowledge that we will all give an account to God for our lives, and so our actions matter, walk accordingly. That knowledge (laughs) means that God's enemies should fear him, abject terror. And so we'd better be his friends. To his enemies, it is a judgment. But to us who have been reconciled to him, the fear of the Lord is a joy. The fear of the Lord, Proverbs tells us, is the beginning of wisdom. Do you want to be wise? This is where to begin. Fear the Lord and hear his words. Nehemiah shows us that this fear, this reverent awe, has a sanctifying power. It transforms us. He had it. And his forebears didn't. That is the difference. I would suggest the fear of the Lord is what the Apostle John experienced on Patmos. 
who had lived with Jesus during his early earthly ministry for the whole thing. And yet when he saw the risen and glorified Jesus, he fell to the ground like a dead man in reverent awe. Reverent awe is the proper response from the knowledge that comes that we walk before a mighty God. There is none like him. We can go further. The prophet Isaiah told us that the Messiah to come from his perspective, the Messiah we know from ours, has the fear of the Lord, if you can get your head around that. Jesus has the fear of the Lord. I'll read it to you from Isaiah 11. I stopped myself at five verses, but I want to read the whole chapter. This is going to be my quiet times this week. Isaiah prophesying said, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. A God-fearing person delights in the Lord and in his ways and because of grace seeks to live in such a way as to please the one who has redeemed us. Nehemiah prays in verse 19, remember for my good, O my God, all that I have done for this people. There's his motivation, to please his God. Do you know that you will give an account for your life? Walk with Jesus today so that that is a promise to you and a delight and not a terror. Last one. It's really quick. It's really quick. Couldn't help myself. When I read the principled governance of Nehemiah, I feel a little pang of jealousy, don't you? I want to live under the leadership of such a man. I don't know what that's like. What makes the life of Nehemiah so special is that it reminds us, ultimately, of what we have in Jesus. I want you to see this. Nehemiah, the faithful man who came to the rescue of God's people to lead them out of slavery and oppression so that they could dwell securely in the land with their Lord, is a picture for us of Jesus, who is the true and better governor. Brothers and sisters, our leader is not a mere man with moral courage. No. The captain over our souls is the great God-man, to whom all other leaders must be compared, from whom all other earthly authority is derived. You and I, we were in hopeless slavery. Sin had promised us pleasure but delivered death. It once had us as its prisoner, and it aimed to keep us there forever as eternal slaves. We were the victims 
of spiritual famine, unable to work our way out to freedom. And our earthly leaders are of no help to us. They are just as much a part of the problem of sin as we are. But Jesus has come to rescue us as the great redeemer and bringer of renewal. He has not come to heap excessive burdens upon you and to further extend the misery of your dilemma by placing on you an possible burden to meet. He has not demanded that you pay him back for every grace at never-ending interest. No, he has come to set us free. And if the Son has set you free, you are free indeed. His yoke is easy and his burden is light. What is more? This God-man has freed us at his own expense. He has shared with us all that he has, even up to his very life. And having risen from the dead, he now rules and reigns with all authority. And his kingdom is of a kind this world has never seen. A day is coming when he will reign directly on this earth. And before him, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord. The prophet Isaiah told us that of the increase of his government, there will be no end. That the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Unlike Nehemiah, this Jesus has no need of repentance for his own sin. He is the sinless one who is an acceptable offering for sin and who lives forever so that he can save to the uttermost those who come to him in faith. To place your soul in the hands of this man is the safest thing you can do. How will he lead us? He will govern us with righteousness and with compassion. He is the most trustworthy of captains and the most certain of deliverers. He is our wall. He hems us in behind and before. The righteous run into him and are safe. And all of this he gives to us as a gift of grace. Not of deserving, not of earning, not of making it. Freely given, costly given, freely received. Let this man work his renewal in you. He will only use it to make you like him and to fit you for his service. He will bring life to your weary and burdened soul. And in doing so, we will see him establish his marvelous kingdom. Let's pray.
Father, would the, would the brokenness of this world and all of its systems create in us a holy dissatisfaction? This is not home. And for that, we are deeply grateful. If we were to live for this life only, we are aiming too low. Rescue us, we pray. Forbid it, Lord, that we would have to continue to live in such a decrepit world. Create in us the right kind of longing. The longing for a world made new. The longing for a different kind of people. The longing to live under the direct kingship of our Lord and our God, who is goodness personified. Make that the goal of our hearts, the goal of our actions, the goal of our faith. Jesus, we can't change this world. <laughs> we, we, can change, we can change some things. That broken spiritual principle, we are powerless. And so we thank you that you have done what we cannot and that you are doing what to us is impossible. We thank you for that promise. Create in me the good sense <laughs> to love you and to fear you so that I would live in light of that day today. Freely I confess, my God, that your ways are not my ways. Your ways are higher than my ways. Lift me up out of the muck and the mire of my own perceptions and my own preferences, my own likes and dislikes, to trust you and your word implicitly, to know that you have the words of life, and to walk with you in the path you have. Thank you, Jesus, that by your grace, such a life begins in us today. There is no substitute. There is no other name. There is no one else who can create this kingdom. Teach us to fear you in the delight of the fear of the Lord. Jesus, to you, the crucified and risen God-man, we give our souls. We entrust them to you, saying, Jesus, be what we cannot. Not by our working, not by our deserving, but by your grace. Have your way in us, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. Why don't you stand and sing on that day?